Well, good morning again. How's everyone doing? Doing all right? Think about yesterday, your Saturday. Um, I'm sure you experienced lots of different emotions throughout the day. But what was the predominant emotion of your Saturday? What was the emotion that you felt the most, that you felt for the longest? And uh, Gallup recently did a survey of U.S. adults. And 17% of U.S. adults say that for most of their day, their primary emotion is loneliness. 17%. It's actually a lower number than what they were able to determine during the pandemic when that number really jumped up. But 17% is still significant. That represents 44 million Americans who, when they think about their Saturday, they say, the thing I most felt was lonely. A recent Gallup research estimates that there are over 300 million people around the globe who say they don't have a single friend. And one in five people in our world, 20% of our world, say they don't have a friend or a family member that they can count on when needed. Loneliness. You know, we as a society for the last few decades have been experimenting with a new way of addressing our loneliness through technology, right? We have Zoom calls and we have social media, we have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all those other forms and platforms. Um, and now we have uh, AI, which you can have a whole conversation with uh, with a chatbot that will just kind of blow your mind with their ability to interact with you. It's either really interesting or terrifying, depending on how you feel about uh, movies like iRobot, um, which used to be funny and now they're scary. Um, but we're using technology to address our loneliness. Here's three recent headlines from legitimate publications. <laughs> This is not the National Enquirer, okay? These are real headlines from, from significant publications in the last three months alone. Uh, from the New York Times, uh-oh, I seem to be dating a chatbot. New York Magazine last month, the headline was, The Women Falling in Love with Their AI Boyfriends. And then a couple months ago in Business Insider, the article, I'm dating an AI chatbot. It's one of the best things to happen to me. Now, I know that probably your initial reaction is that's, that's kind of ridiculous. It's, it seems like it's easy to make fun of that. Yet, I think it's important to notice what's happening in our society. People are turning everywhere and anywhere to address the issue of loneliness. And what's interesting is that in a time in history where we undoubtedly have unprecedented access to each other, right, all the time, we're also seeing, sociologists are saying, at the exact same time, there are corresponding skyrocketing rates of loneliness, depression, and despair. So, what we're doing is not working. How do we address loneliness? And what does the Bible have to say about loneliness? So this morning, we're going to go actually very much back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to talk about loneliness. And what we're going to see from the creation accounts is that there's a reason for our loneliness, that there are some results due to loneliness, but also there's a remedy for loneliness. So let's talk first about the reason for loneliness. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, this is part of the creation accounts, says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man or that Adam should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Right from the beginning, God looks at Adam in paradise, perfect world, everything's great, but there's still one problem left. He's alone, and it's not good for him. Scott Sauls, who's a pastor and author in Nashville, was telling a story about a time when he met a famous country music star at a concert venue in Nashville. He said if, if he were to share her name, many of us, certainly those of you that like country music, you would know who she was. 
And he was talking to her backstage, and she was sharing about how even though she is well-known and about to walk on stage to adoring fans, she can't shake this feeling of loneliness. And this is what she said. She said, in about five minutes, I'm going to walk out on that stage. Thousands of people's attention will be fixed on me. They will sing along with all of my songs. And then tomorrow night, I'll do it again in another town, and then I'll do it again, and then I'll do it again. And you might look at my life and think, what a life. She's really living the dream. But the truth is, is that being the person on stage makes me feel like I'm the loneliest person in the room. When I think about this artist, I, I was thinking about two questions. Number one, why does she write songs and, and arrange music and perform for an audience? And then secondly, why does she feel lonely even while she's doing that? And the answer actually is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it says that God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So one of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith from Scripture is that you and I were created in the very image of God. We're image bearers. And so when we see who God is, we have a sense of who we should be. So why does she write songs and perform music? Because she does meaningful, life-giving, creative work, and so does God. Genesis 1, we see God at work in his creativity, and he's, he's, he's making things happen, and he's speaking things into existence. And we've been created in the image of a God who does meaningful, life-giving work, and so we do work, hoping that it matters. That's why she does what she does. But why did she feel lonely? Well, it's the exact same reason. Because we've been created in the image of God. See, the God that we learn about in the scriptures is an eternally relational God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, eternally in relationship with each other, three in one, three persons, one God, and you and I have been created in the image of that God who has forever been in life-giving, meaningful relationship, and so we crave that as well. That's why we're lonely. Scott Sauls goes on to say this. According to the Bible, we experience loneliness not because there's something wrong with us, but because there's something right with us. Because we know that there's something that we need. We experience loneliness because we know deep down we were made for connection and intimacy and love. We sense that you know, separation from each other is not how things are supposed to be. It's true theologically, but it's also true experientially. We all experience this. So the reason for loneliness, according to the Bible, is not sin. Genesis 2, ready? Here's a math lesson. Genesis 2 is before Genesis 3. Pretty good, right? <laughs> Genesis 3 is when sin enters the world. In Genesis 2, Adam feels alone. So what that means is loneliness is not a result of sin or the curse or the fall. Loneliness is because we were created in the image of a God who has ever been in relationship with himself. And so we need relationship, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you haven't noticed, you're sitting in a church right now that's named Trinity Assembly. And so this is a doctrine that's unique to the Christian faith, and it's actually a significant stumbling block for Muslims that I've spoken with. It's a very hard concept to understand, but I want to just take maybe two minutes, if you let me put like a teacher hat on for a second, and talk to you about the doctrine of the Trinity. This maybe will help us a little bit. Three key truths that make up the doctrine of the Trinity. Three things we have to hold together in tension. And the first truth is this. God is three distinct persons with distinct roles. He is not one person who shows up in different ways. So like I'm one person, yet I'm a son, I'm a father, and I'm a pastor. 
But that's, not, that, that's three different modes of the same person. That's actually a heresy called modalism, that God is one person who shows up in three different ways. No, God is three distinct persons with distinct roles, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not one God who sometimes shows up like the Father, sometimes shows up like the Son, and sometimes shows up like the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. The second important truth about the Trinity is this. Each of those persons is fully God. God the Son, Jesus, is not less God than God the Father. God the Holy Spirit is not junior Holy Spirit or junior God. They're all fully God. There is another heresy called Arianism that believes that Jesus came after the Father and that he's somehow lesser than the Father. And then the third truth that we have to hold in tension with these other two is that there is, despite these things being true, there is one God. There's there's a heresy called tritheism which believes that they're actually three different gods. Now, if this is new to you, or if you've struggled with this, then I would just say get in line, because <laughs> this is hard to understand. This sort of defies our human understanding, cognitive abilities. Like one god makes sense, right? Three gods make sense, or like the Romans and the Greeks, many gods make sense, but three persons, one God. And one of the things I always say to people, like when they say, do you really believe this? I say, well, who would have made this up? Like, who comes up with this and thinks this will work? (laughs) This will help people. The only reason that this would actually gain any traction is because it's what is taught in scripture. So the Trinity is a mystery. And I think it's cool to know that the early church fathers and mothers struggled with this too. So they actually came up with an illustration. There was this famous dance that would happen back at that time in the, in the world, and they, they called it the perichoresis. And the perichoresis, what would happen when there were two or three dancers, they would dance in a circle, and they would exchange partners, and they would, they would kind of move quickly. They would dance so quickly and so effortlessly that when you watched them dance, it actually became a blur, and you couldn't tell at times who was who. Their individual identities were not lost, but they were part of a larger dance. And the early church fathers and mothers, according to Jonathan Marlowe, they looked at that dance and they said, well, this is kind of what the Trinity is like. It's this beautiful, harmonious motion. It's this set of relationships in which there is mutual giving and receiving. Tim Keller, talking about this dance, says this. Each of the divine persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, centers upon the others. None of them demand that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Have you ever thought that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for all of eternity have just loved one another, have have devoted themselves to each other, prefer and actually uh, give to each other? Keller says, each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the other, and it creates this dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. And then one more thought on this. Elmer Coyler says this. What Christ did on the cross was not simply to forgive us. It was to restore us to the dance, to union and communion with the Father through the Son in the Spirit. So in a way, when we come to Jesus, you are invited into that dance with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all of Christian life, Elmer says, is all of Christian faith, life, and practice is participatory. It's not a spectator sport. You get in on this. Now, so... When you think of all what I just said, which I know is a lot, harmonious set of relationships, mutual giving and receiving, loving, adoring, deferring, rejoicing in each other, a life, practice, and faith that is participatory, that describes the Trinity. Now, think about this. You and I were created in that image. That's the image we have within ourselves. 
And so, of course, we experience loneliness because we were created for relationship. And we know, as, as, as God said, it's not good to be alone. We watch movies like Castaway, and we see Tom Hanks' character build a relationship with a volleyball. Wilson, right? And at first, we're like, this is so silly. And then, like, 45 minutes later, when Wilson goes off into the ocean, we're like, this is so silly. <laughs> and we're like, why does it bother me so much that this volleyball is floating away and Tom Hanks is screaming, Wilson! Because we know it's not good for us to be alone. When I was in college, I was a busser and a host at Don Pablo's, a chain Mexican restaurant that I think has gone out of business in Henrietta. And every time I sat someone alone, a little part of me on the inside was so sad for them. Uh, they probably weren't sad. They were probably fine. They are probably a business person traveling. That, but I always wanted to, like, I had this dream that I would take this person who's sitting alone and I would seat them with this person <laughs> who's sitting alone. And, and I did a personality test one time, and part of my personality says this, every stranger is just a friend you haven't made yet. So that tells you a little bit about, about me. But I, I just sense, now, you, not, you may not be like me. You might be pretty happy on your own. Yet, I think if you're honest, all of us sense within ourselves it's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. I mean, we, we, we can't even barely have an enjoyable aesthetic experience without immediately thinking of who else we wish was there. You eat something delicious, and you're like, oh, man, I got to tell somebody about this. You see something beautiful, and you take a picture, and you post it on Instagram so other people, right? Yesterday, I was in uh, Albany. My, my oldest daughter plays lacrosse. We were in Albany for a game, and I get a text from somebody in the church, and the first text comes through, and it says, I need some serious pastoral advice. For a second, I was like, uh-oh. And the next text was, where can I get the best bimbimbap in Syracuse? Which bimbimbap is a Korean fried rice dish. And I was like, these two texts side by side is like a microcosm of my entire existence. <laughs> Pastoring and telling people where to eat. Because they knew that I, I love doing this. And maybe you're not wired that way as much as I am, yet we can't barely enjoy life without thinking about who else we want to share it with. We can't even shape our identities apart from one another. There's a book that came out recently by David Brooks, who I think writes still for the New York Times, and the book is called Social Animals, and it's, it, it references a growing body of research that indicates the extent to which you and I are profoundly relational creatures. And it pushes hard against this notion that anyone can do it on their own and there's a self-made self. And there's this, a lot of different premises that he works off of, but I thought this one was amusing. There's one study that found that people named Dennis or Denise are disproportionately likely to become dentist. <laughs> I immediately thought of Crentis the dentist from The Office if you watch that show, but... People named Lawrence or Lori are disproportionately likely to become lawyers. This is research, okay? Uh, people named Lewis are disproportionately likely to move to St. Louis. And people named George disproportionately move to Georgia. These are some of the most, think about this, these are some of the most important decisions in a person's life. And they are influenced, if only a little bit, by the sound of the name. They happen to be given at birth. His, 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 his whole thought is this. You can't even be yourself on your own. No one is a self-made person. We're made for community. And the reason for loneliness is not sin. The reason for loneliness is that before the fall, even in paradise, Adam was lonely. 
We've been created in the image of a triune God who has eternally existed in relationship within himself. So what does that mean for you and me this morning? We cannot avoid this need for relationship. We shouldn't pretend it's not there. We shouldn't numb it with Netflix. We shouldn't run away from it. We shouldn't fight it. We may have been hurt by it in the past, but we have to continue to lean into it because it's part of bearing God's image. That's the reason. Second thing is the result of loneliness. Let's go back to the passage and finish it, 19 through 25. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every birds of the heaven and and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man, gave, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable or fit for him. No one to have meaningful life-giving relationship with. So God steps in. He says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last, he sees this woman, he's like, at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we see here is we see Adam at work because he's bearing God's image, and God's a working God. So God gives Adam a job. He says, I want you to name all of the animals. And the joke is, is that animal, or is that Adam started with a lot of energy and excitement. He's like coming up with these huge long names, you know, elephant and, and important. And then by the end, he's just like ant. <laughs> and then he just started naming them after what they do, fly. Um, and so Adam here is naming these animals, but he's not just naming the animals. He's, he's at the same time, he's looking for a helper, someone like him, and none is found. And then God steps in, and he puts Adam into a deep sleep. He creates another image bearer, an Eve, who's equal but different. And what we see here at the very beginning of Scripture is that the way that God dealt with our loneliness is that he gifts us with relationships that are designed to complement us. Man and woman, different but complementary. In fact, we say this often in weddings. I'll say this in weddings a lot. In being created from man or out of man, she was not created out of his head to dominate him or to be over him, nor created out of his feet to be under him or trampled by him, but she was created out of his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. So God's solution here, the result of our loneliness is, I'm going to give you a helpmate. I'm going to give you another image bearer who is equal to you in every way, but different from you in many ways. How many husbands and wives have learned that? You're equal in every way, but you're different in many ways. And in order to complement each other, in order for two things to complement each other and go together well, they can't be identical. They have to be different. What makes things complementary is that there are some unique characteristics about each of those things. And when you're dating someone, those differences, we call those differences cute and interesting <laughs> and exciting. And then you marry them. <laughs> and you call those differences annoying. <laughs> but to be in meaningful, life-giving relationship with each other means that we have to recognize our differences, appreciate our differences, don't try to make people like you, embrace the things that make us different, 
and recognize that in order for us to be the people that God called us to be, we actually have to be a bunch of people who are quite different from each other, yet able to complement one another. But here's the thing. As you know, after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3. So how does sin mess this up? Sin moves us from having relationships where we complement each other to relationships where we either try to complete each other or we compete with each other, right? Famous Jerry Maguire scene, you complete me. And so that has actually burrowed its way into a romantic mindset in our country that I'm looking for the perfect soulmate who will complete me perfectly and every broken part of my life they're going to fix. And everything that's wrong with me, they're going to be the right thing about it. And, and, and I know it sounds a little, a little silly when I say it that way, but how many of us at times in our life have lived that way? We've looked at another person, and maybe it's not even a romantic relationship. Maybe you look at someone who could hire you for a job, and you think if that boss would hire me, you look to them thinking you'll complete me. If that coach would choose me for their team, you would complete me. If that friend would let, if that friend circle would invite me in, then I would be feeling complete. And what we do is we put our hopes in another person. And but the problem is that that person that you've put your ultimate hopes in was not created to bear the weight of your ultimate hopes, because they're broken and frail just like you. And you place a burden on them that they were not created to carry. And then if we're not looking at other people to complete ourselves, we're looking to compete with each other. We're trying to validate ourselves. Everything's a competition with every little victory over a human being, whether it's in sports or work, our career paths, trying to surpass other people, relationships, trying to present an image of having the best marriage, the best family, the best friendships, possessions, trying to keep up with the Joneses and have newer cars and nicer stuff, or even little conversations. Every conversation, we're trying to walk away feeling like we won. And so this is actually what sin does, is it takes a gift, the, the, the need for one another, and it shifts it from being something where we complement each other to where we are trying to complete each other or compete with each other. So the results of loneliness can be wonderful, or they can be terrible. And we've probably all experienced both. And then lastly this morning, what is the remedy for loneliness? Now, most of the time when you ask, when you ask a question in church, 80% of the time, I'm just going to give you help here, the answer is Jesus, right? Like, my, my daughters have figured this out. We do a devotional at our house many nights, and I've learned with Maddie, our nine-year-old, no matter what question I ask her, I'm going to get the same answer. Because like 50% of the time, she's right. Like, she's smart. So we were learning about the man born blind the other day in Jesus' healing. I was like, Maddie, I just read the whole verse, told the whole story. You know, she's nine, so she's not really listening to me. But um, I said, Maddie, who was, the, who was born blind? Jesus. <laughs> no. What did Jesus do for the man born blind? Jesus. I was like, this is not even a verb. That's a personal pronoun. You're not even trying and so then finally I go, who healed the man born blind? Let's get going here. She was like, Jesus. I'm like, you are so smart. You're just like your dad. You're just like your dad. But when it comes to the remedy for loneliness, the interesting thing is the answer in a way actually isn't Jesus. Or it isn't just Jesus. Because remember, Adam in the garden was in paradise. He had perfect relationship with God, something you and I will not experience till we're in heaven. Perfect, uninterrupted relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he still felt lonely. So if you think, well, the cure to my loneliness is more time with Jesus, the answer is yes and no. Listen, I'm never gonna say more time with Jesus is a bad thing, but you don't just need time with Jesus, you need time with other people. 
And, and, and sometimes people get hurt by the church. I understand that happens. People get hurt by other Christians who are or people who claim to be Christians. I understand. That's a real thing. And so what they do is they say, I just want Jesus and I don't want the church. The problem is, is that it doesn't solve this problem that we were created for meaningful life-giving relationship with each other, for biblical community, community that's built around the person and mission of Jesus. Now, how do we get this? Samuel Amady, in an article on the Gospel Coalition website, said this about what it means to do life together. He said, when the Bible speaks about the church, it refers to it as, and I want you to hold on to these two words, a covenant community. We're a covenant community. We're not a club we're a covenant community. Church members aren't just part of a shared interest group. They've covenanted to one another through a sacred promise to oversee one another's membership in the kingdom of God and each other's faithfulness to King Jesus. The New Testament explains what this sacred promise looks like. We gather regularly together like we are this morning. We bear one another's burdens and sorrows. We encourage one another, we pray for one another, and we forgive one another. So the key, by the way, to understanding the remedy for loneliness is the word covenant. I'm going to ask the band to join me as I get ready to finish here. In Genesis chapter 2, the passage that we looked at, what happens? Adam has a need. God puts Adam into a deep sleep, right? And when Adam wakes up, do you know where he's at? He's at his wedding, He's at his wedding. He just wakes up. Isn't that a great wedding planning strategy? Just God, put me to sleep and wake me up at the altar. And, and so Adam goes to sleep, wakes up, and you know what a wedding is? A wedding is a covenant ceremony. So he wakes up in a, he, God puts Adam in a deep sleep. He wakes up, he's in a covenant ceremony. You know, 13 chapters later in Genesis 15, it happens again. Exact same thing, but different person. There's a man named Abraham. And God wants to have a covenant relationship with Abraham. And he brings Abraham to a place of a covenant ceremony. And this covenant ceremony in the ancient Near Eastern culture was very specific, detailed, and symbolic. And the covenants were usually between a lord and a servant, a master and a servant. And what would, by entering into covenant, here's what was being said. The servant was saying to the lord, the person with the money and the power and the influence and the armies, you protect me, you look out for me, and I will serve you. And the Lord says, if you serve me and come help me when I have to go to battle, I will look out for you when you're in trouble. And this is how they took care of each other. And so they entered into this covenant ceremony. Now, the Hebrew word for covenant actually is translated to cut a covenant, to cut a covenant. And the reason why was because in the middle of the covenant ceremony, they would bring an animal and they would cut the animal right in half. And they would separate the two parts of the animal. And that at this very symbolic moment in the covenant ceremony, the servant, never the Lord, always the servant would walk between the two pieces of the animal. And this is what it symbolized. If I break this covenant, then let what happened to this animal happen to me. So God's having this covenant ceremony with Abraham. And they get to the point where the animal is cut in half. And I want you to see what happens in verse 12 of Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. This is the second time in Genesis that God put somebody into a deep sleep. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. You know what that represents? The presence of God. A flaming torch passed 
between the pieces. Here's what's happening. God will not let Abram walk through it. He puts him into a deep sleep so that he will not. Why? Because he knows that Abram's going to break the covenant. He knows that his son Isaac will break the covenant. He knows that his grandson Jacob will break the covenant. He knows that Israel throughout all of the Old Testament will break the covenant. He knows that you and I break the covenant. And if Abraham had walked between those pieces, then the punishment of our sins would be upon us. And so he put Abraham into a deep sleep. And you know who walked through the pieces? God. And God was saying this in that moment. If you break the covenant, I'll take the punishment. If you sin against me, I'll bear the weight of your sin. What you deserve, I'll take. And thousands of years later, that's exactly what happened on the cross, where Jesus, the only real covenant keeper, went to the cross, torn apart physically like an animal, because you and I break the covenant. We broke the covenant, but Jesus takes the cutting. Can you see what Jesus did for the people of God? Can you see what Jesus did to make us the people of God? This is what it cost Jesus to make us his people. And listen, I don't know where you're at this morning with loneliness and how you felt yesterday and how you feel this morning, but this is what I know. If Jesus walked to the cross for you, he will walk through any situation with you. If he would give his life for you, he will walk through your life with you. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He is with us. His promises, his disciples was even to the ends of the world, I'm with you. This is the Lord that we have. And this is the remedy for loneliness, to enter into a covenant relationship with God and then to be pulled into a covenant community with each other. Now, real quick, before we sing, what are some next steps maybe we take in response to this? Some of you are here every Sunday, and I'm so grateful that you are. We're glad that you're here. But yet you don't spend any time with anyone else in this room outside of Sunday. I think that's something we have to work on. I think that's a problem. I actually think that's an obstacle for our church being as healthy and strong as it can be. I think we should be connected to each other beyond Sundays, in each other's homes, meeting for lunch, going and getting coffee, or at the very least, texting and reaching out to each other through the week. How can I pray for you? Encourage. So some of you are here and you're thinking, I, I need to step out. I've been here long enough. I'm rooted enough. I'm going to start doing this. We also have to know that attending a service isn't the actual measure of community. Shared life is. Showing up isn't the actual measure of community. Being built in is. We have to know the difference between things that are uncomfortable but good for us and things that are comfortable but bad for us. It might be uncomfortable for you to go to a dinner party, but it might be good for you. It would be more comfortable you'd go, I'm just going to pass this one. This is for people, who, these are, this is for extroverts. This is for people who like people. I don't even know if I like people. Some things are not good, are not, are hard, some things are difficult, but they're good for you. And then here's the last thing I want you to do. Look for, look for people who are lonely. 44 million Americans yesterday mostly felt lonely. There's people in your neighborhood, students, there's people in your schools, students in your schools, there's people that you work with. They hide their loneliness, they show up, maybe they're even loud and boisterous, but behind it, there's a lot of loneliness. They don't have a real friend. And one of the best ways that we can share the gospel is just by being great friends to our neighbors and to the people around us. And as we do that, maybe the Lord will reveal to them the joy of covenant community with him and with each other. Let's pray together.